You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, everybody, today is an exciting day. Um, It's an exciting day because we've been in the Gospel of John uh, for months at this point, and we finally arrive to our very first of seven I Am statements that are unique to John's Gospel. John is one of Jesus' disciples that followed him around throughout his ministry, and, and after Jesus had died and was resurrected, John wrote everything that he remembered down, um, not, not everything, but he, he wrote down this account so that we would know who Jesus is, understand what he has done, and the significance of these things. 
And today, Jesus makes his first I am statement. He says that I am the bread of life. Now, it's very exciting um, to move into this. It's, it's, it's also simultaneously very overwhelming to me because in this passage, uh, there's just so much to talk about. In fact, I was so overwhelmed this week as I sat down at my study uh, to, to start putting together my thoughts for this sermon that, that I had to divide it up. I was actually supposed to go all the way to the end of John, well, I don't know if it was all the way to end of six, but it was supposed to be an even, it's like double the size today, and I just, I, I knew I couldn't do it. So we split it up. We're going to spend extra time in this John chapter six passage um, because it is not only a crucial piece of John's gospel as he presents to us Jesus, the bread of life, this passage is also full of glorious doctrine. This is, this is a, a crown jewel of sorts in John's gospel. Instead of going straight down the praise page like I typically do, what I, I want to do is sort of, uh, I want to highlight three S's. So if you're a note taker, this will be a great Sunday to take notes. I've got three S's, which coincidentally is my initials, that I'm going to work through. Um, and, and we're going to highlight three themes that we see in these verses. And, and in this, I hope to showcase the beauty of reformed Calvinistic theology. This is, this is glorious. This is this is like high-octane theology, and what high-octane theology is meant to do is fuel doxology. Doxology is worship. It's the expression of adoration, of worship, of praise. And so as we come face-to-face with this high-octane doctrine, it's not just an intellectually stimulating thing. That's not the, I mean, that's one thing that good theology does. But what it's meant to do is drive you to worship the Lord to a greater degree. And so I'm praying that the Lord today, this is really what, what I'm asking the Lord for, that he would bring us to a place of deeper, more profound worship, that our hearts, man, maybe you're maxed out right now, like all the worship that I have to give, I'm giving it to him. Well, the Lord would expand our hearts even more that we'd be able to give him the praise that he is due. So worship not only is a, a thing that happens here on Sunday mornings, but an all of life reality. And so to move into this, I want to set the scene of John chapter 6 first. And in this chapter, we've seen back-to-back miracles happen. First thing we saw was Jesus was going up to a hillside on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And as he went, a whole crowd drew near to him. And they get up the mountain and they realize nobody has anything to eat except for this little boy who has five loaves of bread, of barley bread, and two fish. And Jesus does a miracle where he multiplies the loaves and the fish and he feeds a multitude. It says 5,000 men. There was likely to be 20, 20. 25,000 people there on the hillside. Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish so people eat and are filled. And then there's some some peer pressure that goes on and Jesus withdraws and and he and his disciples go away across the Sea of Galilee. So they head out west, uh, northwest, and they they end up in Capernaum. Uh, But on on the route to Capernaum, Jesus, uh, the disciples leave without Jesus by boat and Jesus actually walks on water and catches up with them in the midst of a a storm. So back-to-back miracles and they arrive in Capernaum um, in the cover of night. And as the the dawn on breaks the next day, the people who are on, on the hillside where they just ate the fill of the fish and the loaves, they realize in verses 22 through 24 that Jesus and his disciples are gone. And they're a little bit confused about this because they saw the disciples get in the boat. They saw Jesus go this other way, but they, they didn't go together, but somehow they ended up across the sea. They heard word as other people were traveling across. 
And so they, they take note of the fact that Jesus is gone, and this, this whole dialogue that happens here uh, begins with a question in verse 24. It says, so the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got in the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now this this right here introduces us to the first theme of this morning, the first S, and that is seek, seek. We see there at the end of verse 24, the people, the crowd is seeking Jesus. In verse 25, they find Jesus. Now this seems to be a good thing, right? I mean, after Jesus, of, of seeking him would seem like a good thing. But Jesus, who has the ability to see to the heart of man, he perceives some ulterior motives going on there. And he calls them out in verse 26. He says, truly, truly, whenever you see that, that cadence of truly, truly, Jesus, there's a zinger in there somewhere. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, Jesus' perception, which is always right, he, he's all-knowing, all-seeing. Jesus, Jesus is not speculating here. He sees the thoughts and the intentions of men, and he says, I can tell you're seeking me purely on a carnal basis. You're, you're coming after me, and he says specifically, not because you saw a sign, which um, for Jews, they, they wanted to see signs. It's, it's an expression of God's power. It's an expression of authenticity of someone's ministry. They wanted to see signs. But here Jesus says, no, 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 you weren't chasing me for the signs. You're seeking me because you just got your fill. You're coming after me because... I gave you a free lunch. And like little ducks who, you know, you, you toss the bread out and they seem to follow you all the way up to your car when you leave the park. Um, these people are following Jesus around this, this region of Galilee. And the thing that is driving them are their bellies. Now this, this issue that Jesus addresses, it's not the fact that people are seeking Jesus that he takes problem with. It's not the fact that they're looking for food. In fact, God has designed all of us to have needs. Like we were created with a deficit, that we ourselves are not, cannot be autonomous, we cannot be self-reliant. We are in need of sustenance that comes from outside of ourselves. If you wanna live, if you want to survive, you need food and water. But this reality, this physical reality, biological reality of hunger and thirst is meant to point to a deeper, more profound reality. Just as your tummy grumbles when you're hungry, so does your spirit pant and long for God. You see this with the psalmist. He says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. Your belly is meant to drive you to Jesus, to see not just your physical need, but your spiritual need that you were created by God and you need God because he sustains all things. Now, Jesus points out this reality here in verse 27. He says this, if I can find it. Part of my struggle here on Sunday mornings is I, I study from a different Bible than I preach from. And so in my brain, it's on this side of the page, but reality, it's here. So you're just like bouncing around. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. Jesus is talking. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
for on him the Father has set his seal. Now, Jesus here, as this passage goes on, there's, there's multiple instances where Jesus draws a distinction between ordinary bread and true bread, or, or normal bread and bread from heaven, physical bread and spiritual bread. And in fact, this spiritual bread is called, there's a bunch of different, it's like the bread of life, um, the bread of heaven, God's bread, um, several different, you know, uh, names that Jesus uses for it. And, and what he's calling out here is not the fact that they're hungry, not the fact that they're searching. Jesus is calling out the problem that they're searching for the wrong thing. He says, you're preoccupied with chasing natural bread. You're preoccupied looking for the bread that's for your belly, but what your ultimate pursuit ought to be is the spiritual bread, the bread of life, the bread that endures for eternity. Now, this should be a callback here for us. If we, were, if we were reading the Gospel of John as it was meant to be, we sat down and read, read the whole thing, and you can see all kinds of, of themes that connect together from chapter to chapter, verse to verse. One of the things that would just like should be going off in your head, the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, Jesus is talking uh, to this woman at the well, and disciples have gone into town to get food to eat, and they come back to Jesus, and, and they say this. Let me. Um, it's in, in verse... Uh, 4, 30-something, 30, 30. Uh, here, 31. Chapter 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, this is it here, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. So Jesus here, in, in making a distinction between ordinary bread and spiritual bread, Jesus says the true bread, the living bread, is to do the work, to accomplish the work that the Father has sent out before me, to do the will of the Father. Now, we don't know if these people were with Jesus. They, they weren't there. And, and maybe they heard about the Samaritan woman or not uh, and this whole teaching saga from John chapter 6. or not. I, I don't know. It's speculation. But here, for the reader, this should be, you know, this should be a little indicator bulb flashing that Jesus is talking about that the true food is to do the will of the Father, to do the works of the Father that he has given him to accomplish. Now, the people have this instinct. Whether they know this or not, they have this reflex. They want to know, the crowd wants to know, how do we upgrade from the normal bread, the ordinary bread, to laying hold of the true bread? And they asked Jesus in verse 28. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? The people here have an impulse to ask, what must I do to acquire this true bread? What kind of works, what kind of things must I accomplish or do in order to earn this true bread that Jesus is speaking about? Now, this, this is an impulse that we all naturally have according to the flesh. This idea that we can... We can um, do things in order to gain God's approval, his favor. Like, it, it, and in fact, every single world religion revolves around the idea that you must earn in order to get, right? To, to, you must do to get. 
Whether that's you pray and then you get something, you give, then you get it, you serve and then you you evangelize, you do your part, you you play your role and then at the end of all of your performing, there is a payout of sorts where God chooses to bless you. Whether that's with uh, monetary, physical, um, spiritual blessings, then God sees your good works and then he decides because you proved yourself Here's an A-plus with a star on the paper for you. You win. But what Jesus shows us right here, in his response to the people, they're asking, what are the works that we must do? Jesus actually, instead of works, Jesus responds with a singular. It's not, here are the works you must do. Here is the work, the one thing you must do. And Jesus shows us, in this, Christianity is completely different from every other religion. It's different because true bread cannot be earned. Jesus says in verse 27 that this true bread is given by the Son of Man. It's given by the Son of Man. And Jesus, he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent so when, when he's talking about the fact that, Jesus, or that the Son of Man is giving this true bread, this is not just like the Son of Man is a distribution center where you come with your work order. You come and you prove, uh, you show him your, on your way out Costco or, or Sam's Club, and you show your receipts, and you say, yep, I did this, and now you can be on your way. Peter of blessing, Jesus is showing us he gives in the sense he is generous in giving unmerited grace. It's an unmerited gift. It's a donation to people who are undeserving. And the way you receive this gift is by faith. This is the singular work. Now, if you move further on to the passage in verse 40, Jesus says this, He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what we're talking about here is a singular act, a singular work, that of faith. Now, we need to put an asterisk here by this word work here to understand what's really going on. What we're being introduced here. to, and you can hear this throughout the passage, you hear overtones of, of the five solas. Um, this is common five pillars of Reformed theology that point to God's um, work, God's, God's unilateral work in redeeming sinners. And what this says, is, as Jesus says, here's the work you must do is to believe the one who's been sent, believe in the Son, the reformers would call this sola fide, which means by faith alone. We sang about that this morning. In fact, that last song was all about the solas. We are not saved by works, but by faith. Now, this is where a lot of times there's confusion here because people will, you know, Jesus said it's a work, a work of faith, but it's not truly a work in the sense of performance. Faith is, is not a work. Faith is ultimately a gift, Faith is a way of being that God establishes on his own in the life of people. So so faith is not a work, and here's what you need to muster up faith. You cannot muster up faith. You cannot self-generate faith. God gives faith, and so faith is a gift of grace. So then what the reformers would then point to is sola gratia, 
by grace alone. It's not by works, but by grace. If you go to Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. And our faith, which is a gift of grace, rests solely upon not our works, but the works of Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, so that we could be forgiven and justified before God our Father. He raises us with him from the dead and seats us in the heavenlies where he is right now. And so this grace-given faith rests solely upon the achievement of Jesus Christ. So the reformers would say, sola Christus, in Christ alone. And all of this message of the Son of Man, the Son of God who had come and redeemed his people, the Messiah, all of this is heard and learned from God the Father who communicates to his people through his word, through the canon of Scripture, through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the Reformers would point to sola scriptura, by the word alone. The authority of God rests in the word alone. And all of this, to be saved by faith, by grace, uh, that, that rests upon the work of Christ, that then is embedded in the, do, the, the, the scriptures, it's all to the praise of God's glorious grace, sola dea gloria. And so all of this stuff right here is just, you can hear it. You can hear it in this text. The solas are, are singing and when you understand that, that this stuff is going on here in this text, it really flips the script on who is seeking who. You have physical sense. We need to see that God is ultimately the one who is seeking people. Natural man can only seek natural bread in themselves. There's no one out there who is just wanting God to be manifest before them that God hasn't first drawn to himself. And so we need to see it's ultimately God who is seeking people. Again, this flashes us back to John chapter 4 when Jesus says that, that the Father is seeking true worshipers. In John 4, 23, he's, he's seeking true worshipers. In other words, Jesus is there to collect God's elect. We need to realize ultimately it is God who is seeking the people. This is a monergistic, unilateral pursuit. God seeks us first because we are unable to do so. Ephesians 2 tells us you are dead in your sin. What can dead people do? Nothing. And it was while we were dead, God sought us out. It is God who takes the initiative. Just as every Sunday, when we hear the call to worship, we are reminded we're not the ones here that are trying to get God's attention, like, hey, God, pay attention to us down here. God is initiating God is the one that's calling us back in. He's drawing people, drawing worshipers to himself. Jesus says this very explicitly in verse 44. And this is a, a verse that needs to be highlighted in your Bible. Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
No one. No one can come to Jesus unless God is drawing that person to Jesus, which means that there's nobody out there seeking God who has not yet first been drawn to God. But here's the thing. Because we cannot come to God by our own volition, because we can't go out there with our magnifying glasses and, and be you know, little detectives playing our little Sherlock Holmes game, trying to find our way back to God. God comes and finds us. He sends his son. That's why Jesus was there in the flesh. He was there to seek and to save the lost. And what Jesus tells us that he is the sent one. He's the son of man who comes to do the father's will. Take a look at verse 38. He says, for I have come down from heaven. See, who's doing the seeking? Jesus, he has come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It is because Jesus sought the elect, those who God had given him, because Jesus seeks people out that we actually are able to come to face to face with him. It's because of Jesus' work, Jesus' seeking, that we are found. And as Jesus is standing there before this crowd, what he's trying to communicate is he says, don't, don't go for the natural bread, don't go for the ordinary bread that perishes, but, but set your mind on the bread that lasts, that, that perseveres, that goes on into eternal eternity. He says that I have come as the Son of Man to give this bread to you. And the people want proof. In verse 30, you see Jesus saying these things and, and the ignorance of the people, just the... the um, the blindness of the people is put on display several times in this passage. But in, in verse 30, they say to Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they point to the fact that, that Moses gave them manna in the wilderness about Jesus. Jesus is approachable, but not agreeable. Okay. Um, a lot of times we have this mentality that to be approachable means that this person is going to agree with whatever my deductions are, whatever my conclusions are. Um, and, and so a lot of times people say, well, I don't want to go talk to that person because I know they're just going to disagree with me. And so and instead they, they write them off as not being approachable. But here's the thing about Jesus. He, he holds both of these. Jesus is approachable. You see the crowds talking to him. They're drawn to him. But at the same time, Jesus is not agreeable because time and time again, he refutes their views. They say, well, it's Moses who gave us the bread. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now, the people are missing the message here. They're asking Jesus for more signs. The sign actually came earlier on the mountainside when Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves. That, that was the sign, but they, they were too blind to see it. And even in that moment, they're standing before Jesus, who is the Son of Man, coming to give the bread of life. But what they don't realize is that not only is he the giver of the bread of life, he himself is the bread of life. And they can't see it. 
They miss the meaning of the miracle. They miss the identity of Jesus. And yet they say, sir, give us a spread. They, 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 can't, they can't put it together yet. And so Jesus very plainly says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, not only is Jesus the giver of the true bread, he himself is the true bread of heaven. He is the true bread that God gives to feed his people. Standing right there before them, you have the heaven-sent giver and the heaven-sent bread. He says this in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So he says that they were eating natural bread. Sure, it was, it was bread from heaven. Like if you know the story of them in, in the wilderness, God made bread rain every day. Manna, they were like, what is it? That was the name of it. What is it? It came down and they, every day they would eat it. And though it came from heaven, it was not the true spiritual bread that they needed because all those people, they went on to die. The fact that none of them exist today shows that that bread was not yet the true bread. It was pointing to the true bread that one day would come. And Jesus says to them, listen, they, they all ate that bread and it was from heaven, but it wasn't the true bread. But they all died. This is the true bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Black and white, crystal clear. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, we get to spend a little bit more time in this concept next week as he goes into um, talking about, really, it's, it's a sign of the Lord's Supper, the bread that we, we share at the Lord's Supper every week. But what he's pointing to here at the very end of verse five, he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is telling us, like we can, can see this now after all of the events of his life and ministry have transpired. Jesus is saying that his body will be broken, that his blood will be poured out. And by his death, by his breaking, because his body was broken, we can be made whole. And you would think that this would be an eye-opening moment, Right? Like Jesus is saying all this stuff, I'm the bread of, I'm right here before you. All you gotta do, I'm gonna give you the, the everlasting life. And you would think that this would be an eye-opening moment where the light bulb turns on and everybody's like, oh, and they just bow down and worship. But that's not what we see. That, that's not actually what we see at all. Verse 36 tells us that as Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he, he again speaks to them. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. It is possible for you to be face to face with Jesus and still not see him. It's possible for you to spend your whole entire life in a church service and still not see Jesus. Unless you have the gift of faith which God gives that allows you to believe, to see Jesus for who he truly is, you cannot believe in your own strength. The people are plagued with unbelief. 
that people have come to Jesus, they've seen Jesus, but they have not truly seen Jesus. They've not truly come to faith. And we might look at this and think that their unbelief is a reflection of Jesus, his failed ministry. But we have to realize that unbelief is not a failure on Jesus' part. It's not because he's a bad speaker. It's not because he's a bad leader. It's not because he wasn't convincing enough that these people don't believe. The reason these people don't believe is because the Father had not given them to the Son. Because if they had been given to him by the Father, they would come. This is, again, very clear in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, in that moment, we don't see a, a, a grand gesture of faith. You see a grand gesture of unbelief. But we know that at least 11 of the 12 disciples that were there with Jesus, that they would eventually come to believe. And I believe that there were a host of other people that eventually would come to believe. It's just at that moment that unbelief still reigned. And since that moment where Jesus had uttered these words, not only have there been a small remnant of the 12 disciples, or 12, 11 of the 12, because Judas, of course, he, he, he wasn't given to Jesus and later betrayed Jesus. And since that moment, millions of people across the world have come to believe, that have come to see, even, even though they have not truly seen Jesus with their eyes, the eyes of their heart have been opened to see that Jesus is who he says he is. And to this day, God continues to seek, to draw, and to call people to himself. This is why, this is why we exist as a church. Every gospel church is a product of God's seeking. The fact that you are here is because God is seeking worshipers, true worshipers, but God also intends for the church to be part of the process, part of the seeking, to use his church as a light, a beacon of light, to shine his glory into the world, to be a piece of, of God drawing people to himself. Now, we're talking about the doctrine of election. And, and oftentimes, a question that follows, we're talking about like God has elect. God has, has chosen people to save. There's some in this world that God has chosen to save and some that God has chosen to discard. And then what always follows after this is the question, how do I know if I'm among the elect? How do I know that I'm truly saved? Asking that question and, and genuinely care about the answer, that's a good sign to start with. But we also see Jesus point to an indicator here multiple times in John 6. And this is the second S. Satisfied. To be satisfied. Those who receive the bread of life by faith are filled. They're satisfied. Verse 35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Unlike the natural bread that perishes after 
offering a temporary fill, the true bread satisfies. Jesus, the eternal son, is able to satisfy, not just curb your appetite, not just to like uh, hold you over until the next meal. Jesus is able to fully and totally satisfy the longings of your soul. Infinitely and eternally. Because Jesus himself is infinite and eternal. See, the, the marker of eternal life, really what, what this, this, this phrase, which is used several times in this passage, ought to bring us to is the idea of total satisfaction. That we are forever satisfied. Now, Psalm 107 tells us that God, he satisfies the longing of the soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. See, this is a marker of of genuine faith. Are you satisfied in Christ or do you need to keep acquiring more and more and more? Now, this might look like acquiring wealth, might look like uh, moving up the, the, the food chain at, at your work. This might be all kinds of other things where you're going to this. You need, you need um, a ton of affirmation from people. Like these things that we feel like we need, all of those longings, all of those desires can be satisfied in Jesus. I love this hymn that says, you can have all the world. You can take it all. Just give me Jesus. Like Jesus is enough to satisfy my deepest longings and so we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Now just imagine, imagine if we could actually, if we actually believed like Jesus can totally satisfy us and lived like we were satisfied in Christ. Just imagine that. What kind of joy we would possess? What kind of contentment we would have as a people? How we would not be tossed around by the opinions of man or be thrown off when bad circumstances happen because we are secure, we are happy and content and satisfied in Christ. But instead, what we confess this morning is we often turn to lesser things. Jesus offers us a deep soul satisfaction, and yet we run to things like work, sex, money to get our fix, to get filled up, to get this satisfaction that we have to, that we feel like we must have. And in those moments, we're taking these good gifts and we're turning them into idols. We're taking these good things and elevating them to a place where more than Jesus, I need that. Or, or in other words, I need Jesus plus this in order to be satisfied. And what you're saying there is that you aren't satisfied in Christ. The reason why we turn to idols is not because Jesus is, is insufficient to satisfy our longings. It's because we aren't patient enough. The reason why we turn to idols is because we think that this quick fix will will give us what we want more than sitting before the Lord and asking him to fill us up. And so John Piper rightly observes that sin is what you do when you aren't satisfied in God. Do you know that? If you were totally satisfied in God, you wouldn't sin. But our hearts are fickle. Our hearts flip-flop. Mine does. I'm certain yours does too. 
And it's God's good grace that oftentimes brings us to the bottom of the barrel. It's God's good grace that leads us to find the, the emptiness of what it is we're pursuing so that we can turn back to him and find a true filling for our souls. You, you can chase anything in this world, but only Jesus can fill you full. And this is one of the things that the Apostle Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter three. He prays that you would be full, filled with the fullness of God. So, so not only would your heart that is, has a, um, a limited capacity, not only would it be filled, but God would continue filling and filling and filling so that your heart would expand and expand and expand so you have a deeper sense of joy throughout your life as you learn to take delight in the Lord. And even though we run to empty wells and chase these idols that only destroy us and ruin our lives, God is so kind that he draws us to himself again and again through repentance. See, repentance isn't just one thing that happens in your life and then you're set, like you check the box, now I'm going to heaven. Repentance is a lifestyle of realizing that God is drawing me to himself and those things that are pulling me away from, I need to turn away from them so I can pursue Christ, that I can actually come to Christ. And in this act of ongoing repentance in the Christian life, we are filled with grace. Paul says, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Now, because of this reality, because God draws us, even as we are redeemed sinners, this brings us to the third and final S, is that you're secure. The third thing that, that John wants us to know is that if, if you have eaten the bread of life, and if you are satisfied in Christ, you are secure in him. And this idea is baked into verse 37, where it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me will never be discarded. This means that no matter how bad you sin, no matter how often you turn away, no matter how many altars you get down and bow down before, God, if you are his elect, he will preserve you and keep you till the end. He will not cast you out. He has grace upon grace for you to bring you back to himself. And so it is by not, not our faithfulness, it's not by our works that maintains this, this status of being saved or justified. The thing that keeps us in God's care and provision and in salvation is God's power and might and his grace alone. Jesus not only is good at saving us, he's good at keeping us saved. He will not cast us out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. See, Christian, believer, you are secure in Christ. If God draws a person to himself, they will come. If God draws you, you will come. This is, this is the, the effectual pull of God's grace, irresistible grace. If God draws, you will come, and those who come will stay 
with Jesus. This means if you're truly a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. Salvation is not like a jacket that you put on and put off, put on and put off. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and it stays with you. Now, what this means, if you follow this logic out, and this could be a whole podcast, a whole other sermon in itself, this means that people who at one time said that they were Christians and have turned away, it means either one, they were not truly given by the Father to the Son, so they weren't true believers, or two, if they are true believers, God will bring them back. Jesus will not lose one of his sheep. See, Jesus is not only a strong savior who gets people saved, but he keeps people saved. And as we realize this, this ought to produce in us a deep sense of security, that in the gospel, you are kept. There is nothing that can separate you. In fact, the apostle Paul in in Romans 8 He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing can separate you, no matter how bad you sin, no matter how frequently you stumble. Jesus will not lose his people. All who trust and believe, all who who fill up on the bread of life are raised to life. Three times in this passage, at least, Jesus says, I will raise them up on the last day. He talks about eternal life, but three times he says, I'll raise them up on the last day. It's not like I'll maybe do it. I will do it. Jesus will raise his people up on the last day. And the reason that we can know this is true, verse 27 told us, you might have to think back, but it's when, God, when, when Jesus says, um, I gotta find it. He says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will grant you. For on him, that is the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. God has set his seal. What does this mean? It means that, that a seal was used as, a, as a, an emblem of, of legitimacy, an emblem of validation. It's the blue check on Twitter or X or whatever it is now. It's the blue check. You're verified. It's true. It's, it is what it is. Because God has set his, his seal upon Jesus as a sign of authenticity. These are verified facts. There's no coin toss here. What is said will be done. And because all of this is true, because God seeks us even when we don't seek him, because God has the ability to satisfy us by giving his one and only son, and the fact that God himself is satisfied in the giving of his one and only son. He was satisfied that his body would be broken, his blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins. God's justice, his wrath is satisfied in Christ, that we too can be satisfied in Christ. Because God seeks and satisfies, we know that God secures us. 
He keeps us. He has given us a strong Savior. And so I hope you can see, this is, this is the high-octane doctrine that, that should just, just like a fire hydrant of worship in your chest just spews out. If you see this and you believe this and you know this is true, how can you not join the angels in singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has come to us to give us the bread of life which he himself is. He came to give us himself. Let us not run. Listen, it's like, why would you eat stale, moldy bread if you could get Panera's best bread every single day? Like, that's it. Like, why, why would we run to the, the altars of idols if we could be filled up in Christ? And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to fight for that satisfaction, right? To, to, to come while God, seek God while he may be found, knowing that God is the one who initiates and draws you to himself. And this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper, we remember this fact that Jesus himself is the bread of life. This, this morsel, this little sip of wine or juice that you're about to take, it is not physically enough to satisfy your belly. You're gonna go home and you're going to eat lunch more than likely. But there is something spiritual that happens in this meal, something mysterious that happens in this meal where the Lord, by a means of grace through this table, fills his people up so that we would leave here, not as people who are, who are on empty, who are drained down to the dregs, but people who are filled with the spirit of Christ, eager to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called. To live by faith, which is, it's, it's, it produces works. It produces good works. And the spirit of God through this meal empowers us to do this while reminding us that our sins are taken care of, that Jesus was broken so you would be made whole. This morning, if you're not yet a Christian, I, pr I pray that the Lord, in, in hearing the preaching of the word, that this would be a way that God draws you to himself, that the, you, the eyes of your faith, or the eyes of your heart would be open, that faith would be given to you so you could see Jesus for who he is that you would believe in him and have life in his name. Let us pray to the Lord and thank him for this provision. Thank you, Father, that everything that we need is found in Christ. I pray that you would give us the attitude that we would be content, whether in, in joys or in sorrows, our souls find deep contentment and satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us a deep sense of security that knowing that those who have received faith are secure. And you would keep us, Lord, and send us out to do your works in this world that the whole world would come to know who Jesus is and we would experience just this flood of joy through our city and our neighborhoods. I pray, Lord, that this meal would help us, sustain us, um, that you give us what we need to live as your chosen people, living in community and on mission, growing deeper in our understanding of the gospel. We pray this, Lord, for 
for your glory and for the joy of all people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.